Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Pete is still being interrogated. Hopefully, we'll get him back soon. Today, we're talking about Minute 88, which begins with Colonel Phillips' brilliant theory and ends with the hand Zola's been dealt. Back on the show, it's Lorraine Dom. Hello, Lorraine. Hello, everyone. All right. This is really kind of this the bulk of this interrogation. This is where Phillips reveals that he his theory is that Zola wants to live, that he doesn't want to just bite the cyanide capsule, which presumably they've already removed from his mouth, and he wants to live. And, uh, uh, you know, it kind of takes us to this point where Phillips is kind of laying things out like, hey, you know, you you got a Captain Rogers' closest friend killed. Um, you know, we have sent this letter that your side has uh, likely already intercepted and uh, and decoded, saying that you you're providing your full cooperation. And you know, Schmidt, you are going to be his biggest liability, and he is there. There's no chance he's going to let you live. And I, I, it's an interesting uh, kind of way that this scene plays. I mean, how does this, the rest of this interrogation kind of work for you? Uh, it gets uh, real serious real quick. And I, I liked that. It's I'm, like, you're kind of just like thinking, oh, it's going to be uh, this little mellow scene where they kind of get a one up over Zola and that's taken care of. And then we can move on to the big fight scenes but no it zola proves he's a he's a little feistier than planned and um i don't know that maybe he's unlike most heroes he's willing to trade lives i guess i i I do like that there's this moment (laughs) very early in this minute here where and this is after Phillips says his theory is that zola wants to live and Zola says you're trying to intimidate me colonel and I, I, I think that's funny. It's like that. It's an interesting interrogation tactic to say, you know, like I, I've figured you out. You actually don't want to buy. I mean, because I mean, it's very factual. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't, you didn't choose to bite the cyanide capsule like every other person that we have caught who works for Hydra has done. You are the only person who has not done that. So it's not even a, a brilliant theory. And I feel like. Phillips is playing around a little bit when he says that, because it's like, it doesn't take much of a stretch to get to that conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and then, like, and then Zola reads it as intimidation tactics. I don't know. I, I find that very funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Zola went into the scene prepared to be intimidated and, uh, you know, to perhaps be tortured. And so I think he's taking everything as evidence of that, whether... It is or not when Colonel uh, Phillips is just, I think, trying to figure out, like, what's the easiest way to get this information out of you so we can use it to end this war. And Zola's kind of thinking a little more personally, like, how can I protect my assets, uh, you know, and avoid being tortured at the same time? Well, and it's, it plays interestingly because Phillips walked into this room. I mean, I don't know. We we have this letter that he says that they've already um, sent to Washington uh, that w- that had been encoded. And so, um, I mean, we don't know if he really did that. I, my assumption is that he did already do that because he wants to basically set this up like, you know, to Zola, like, you know, you're screwed. 
but it's interesting that he doesn't lead with that. Like he he goes through this whole thing about this is my theory before he kind of gives him this letter. And I, I, I think that's an interesting strategy that he does because he could have just walked in and said, we sent this to Washington this morning um, and we could have started there. But it's it's really kind of beginning with, I mean, I don't know, I, I feel like there's almost like this sense of connecting to Zola's humanity with this whole thing of like, hey, you want to live. There's more to you than the Hydra machine that's just going to buy into it and bite the cyanide capsule. There's something more to you. You actually want to, um, you know, find a way to get through all of this and we can be here to help you. And I think there's something really interesting there. Yeah. Well, I think that was a play on kind of real life access scientists where a lot of them, you know, were either forced to participate in uh, what their government wanted or uh, maybe agreed to it at first and then went, okay, this is not the way forward. Um, so I, th- I think there's that. And I also feel like as interesting as Zola is, I think we have to look at uh, Colonel Chester here and what he wants out of the situation. Um, I mean, they, they talk about Zola wanting to live, but they didn't just, you know, execute him or throw him down in a hole to deal with in a few years. I mean, they're, they're working with him. Um, so they obviously want something. And I'm assuming that's, you know, either the weapons or the plans or, you know, it all kind of goes to Schmidt. And I think Sola quite hasn't realized that they don't really regard him as someone as important as Schmidt did. Uh, they see him as the means to Schmidt where Schmidt, you know, saw him as part of the operation. Yeah. 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 There is an interesting element here. Uh, it, it does make me wonder, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the wiki now about Operation Paperclip and like when did they really start actually fully recruiting these captured Nazi uh, scientists to actually, uh, you know, pardon them in exchange for working for the U.S. government. It looks like, according to the wiki, that doesn't really start for a few more months. May 19th, 1945 is when they begin. It's, it initially was called Operation Overcast and then became Operation Paperclip. So I wonder if this was perhaps the start of that, like they caught him here, it's February 3rd, and I wonder if this is starting to give them these ideas about, hey, you know, we could bring these scientists over and, you know, in exchange for their freedom, they are going to work for us and we're going to learn all of their secrets. Uh, You know, it, it makes me wonder if they're really kind of setting this up to be the idea for that. That could be like the the first the first uh, convert. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I was listening to an audio book about Oppenheimer last month, and uh, they were talking about how there was a very strict like no foreign scientists in while they were developing um, the things they did to create the atom bomb, and uh, so I wonder too if there was sort of like I mean they were doing what they were doing and we were doing what we were doing. And a lot of it worked out to where we had a good idea for one part and they had a good idea for another part. And normally that exchange of ideas would flow and you'd get the ultimate product, but because of, uh, you know, the wartime issues that wasn't happening. So it was after the war that when that information started circulating again, that 
the A-bomb was improved, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, and so I wonder if that was also part of their plan. Like, we know we have these weapons, but they're inefficient as they are. And we know they have parts of that solved. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, this dance that Marvel does between the realities of what had been going on in the real world, like the real operation paperclip with the Marvel operation paperclip and, and things like what you were just talking about and how that, I mean, it doesn't necessarily come into play specifically in the way that things are established in the films, but certainly for the people writing it, the people kind of coming up with these stories and crafting them and stuff, they are taking all of these real world things and kind of integrating it. And so it's interesting how all of that influences and affects a lot of these things as they're developed. Yeah. Well, Marvel has always been good at kind of integrating uh, real world, whether it be the consequences or the actions of just the people standing by. Um, I mean, there's a great scene in the winter soldier where cap is thrown through a bus and the bus tops over and you see all these people like helping other people out through windows and things like that. And I think, uh, Marvel does a great job of like something happens and it doesn't happen just to the hero. It happens to the world at large. And um, they, I think they realize that in a way that with each movie, they're making the history for the next movie. And so they, they kind of give it a full history. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and you know, obviously in the world of comics with different artists coming in and different, um, you know, creatives behind it, uh, things shift and change, but it is, it is kind of interesting to see how that how that develops and so much often reflects the times. Right. And also I think they it makes the stories a little more interesting not to have the bad guys and the good guys, but the good guys doing bad things sometimes and the you know, the bad guys sometimes doing an okay thing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. right, right. Well, and that's I think that speaks to uh, obviously there's plenty of times in the comics where you have you know a good guy fighting another good guy because they're just in dis disagreement about a particular point or about a, a different strategy about how you handle things and I mean you certainly have seen that in even some of the films I mean that's kind of the the entire crux of Civil War and in the TV show you certainly get some um, various TV shows you get you know, people looking at, you know, how do you handle justice? Like when the Punisher rolls in, like versus some of these other characters and things like that. And it's, it's interesting when you start looking at those sorts of things and, and how people handle their own interpretation of what's right or what's wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye series did a great job on that. Um, there's a little subplot about rent control and, uh, you know, people being able to afford somewhere to live and that to have like a social justice theme versus just a uh, bad guys taking over was was very it was a great read for me. Yeah. Fraction's the one who was also doing the uh, the Hawkeye that was adapted for the uh, TV show, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, the TV show felt very different from the comic run, but they were both good in their own ways. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, we get some jokes about breaking codes and all this. Um, 
Tommy Lee Jones, I think, is just on fire the way he's saying stuff like uh, when he's talking about breaking codes. And of course, you guys haven't broken those codes yet, have you? That would be awkward. Like the way that he's wrapping his mouth around words in this scene is great while he continues to eat. And now he's eating the potatoes. So clearly the potatoes were fine. Yeah. And he used seasoning. So the salt and pepper were just fine. Yep. Yep. Of course. Maybe it's a situation where the salt is the antidote to the poison <laughs> right. in the potatoes or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't think we see him eat the broccoli, and I can't remember. I don't think he ever drinks the milk. So, um, so who knows? No, he does. Uh, no, he moves the milk. He moves the milk. He moves the milk. And I'm like, I remember him picking it up, but yeah, he just moves it. And um, so it could be. It could be the broccoli. Maybe the broccoli is the the tainted stuff. Maybe they knew he was a vegetarian to begin with, and so they tainted the broccoli. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, it, I mean, how do you how do you feel like interrogation uh, scenes in films go? As far as like the way that this film plays the intimidation tactics, like how does this scene play versus like other interrogation scenes? Do you feel like it's it's working as far as what what is needing to be done here? Yeah, um, I I think it's very clever and it's it's sort of stark and real. Um, I am not a big fan of gore, so like the thing where you know someone comes in and chops off someone's finger and says, "Okay, we've got nine more for you to tell me the truth." Like, <laughs> like I I get why that's powerful and it works for me, but it also turns me off. Um, so like whenever it's somebody just sort of one person's thinking they're clever and the other one is acting kind of like I'm just an army guy. Like, I don't know. This one just had a lot of meat underneath it. And like everything that was said was said for a reason. Um, We might not know the reason yet behind it. And in retrospect, it might seem like there's things there from what we know becomes of Zola, but I don't know. It was just, I don't know. It was satisfying on a level that gore could never match. Do you have favorite interrogations in film? Uh, Like I said, I'm kind of squeamish. So no. (laughs) How about you? Well, I don't know. The things, the ones that pop into my head, I mean, obviously, I always, it's funny because the two that instantly spring to my mind, weirdly, both involve Hugo Weaving. And uh, which is funny because obviously he's, he's in this film. So it's funny that I don't think I think of them because of this film. It's just those are the ones I think to think of. The first one is The Matrix, when he, of course, uh, you know, as uh, uh, you know, talking to Mister Anderson and the way that he's doing that interrogation with uh, with him early in The Matrix and makes his mouth disappear, and then they drop the little spider creature, spider robot thing into his into his belly button. Like there's there's some great moments that play in that interrogation scene that really throws you because you kind of felt like we were in reality and that's where things start really breaking as far as like we're not in reality anymore so that's one that comes to mind and the other one is actually it's it's an interesting film that uh, i don't think many people have seen but it's an australian film called the uh, it's not the interrogation i think it's called the interview actually uh it's where he is being interrogated hugo weaving is being interrogated and i think uh god i'm trying to remember who he plays opposite um it's an australian actor tony somebody i believe Uh, i'm trying to look it up right now tony martin it's a 1998 film called the interview and it largely takes place in the interrogation room and it's really interesting it's like a psychological 
crime drama is what it is because it really boils down to this interrogation and the way and you kind of have it broken into a couple parts and and tony martin's the investigator and hugo weaving is the person they're interrogating and he seems completely like you know the wrong person like they caught the wrong person and they're interrogating him and and then there's a break and then we come back and things start shifting and it really kind of uh, makes you rethink things that you have had previously thought. It's a it's a really interesting film. Certainly recommend people check it out. It's called The Interview, if you can track it down. Uh, so those two are ones that, that come to mind. But then, you know, you have more comedic ones like, you know, I think of things like Dragnet, where they, you know, there's a drawer conveniently, conveniently, I suppose, for the cops, but inconveniently for the criminals, placed right at crotch level so they can open it and slam the drawer shut. And of course, it hits them in the crotch and, you know, silly nonsense like that. So (laughs) it's funny how the interrogation scene is like such a a key factor for so many police films. I mean, I suppose it allows for a lot of acting. You know, you've got, you know, actors screaming at each other and all that good stuff. So I suppose that's why. Well, and we we as viewers like uh, a very proved villain, I guess. We don't want any doubt unless that's part of the story. Yeah. You know, we want to know that the right, the the perpetrator is is caught and will be serve a punishment. Right, right, right. Two other great ones that just came to mind. Um, seven, where, of course, um, you know, uh, <laughs> he, he who must not be named, Kevin Spacey, is sitting in, in one interrogation room and then you have uh you know the 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 i believe that he was the person who was wrapped into lust as far as that the 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 guy who had the horrifying (laughs) things strapped onto him um he kind of like breaking down and screaming in the other suite and you just have um mills and somerset kind of in the i don't know the room outside the interrogation room but where you can see into all the rooms and you just see the different people in the rooms and um, the way that that plays is great. And then the other one that came to mind is LA Confidential, where you've got another Aussie, uh, Guy Pierce, as he's trying to figure out the, um, you know, what had happened in, to this woman. And he's kind of moving from room to room trying to, trying to solve this crime. So, God, there's a lot of good interrogation room scenes now. There's a pretty good scene in one of the Games of Thrones books, too, where uh, Sansa Stark, I don't think it ever popped up in the uh, television show, um, where she she has just been taken by Littlefinger, and um, she's kind of meeting some of the people he's been aligned with, and she is basically being interrogated for what she knows, but she, in her mind, is uh, connecting all these people, like what houses they belong to to and where their alliances are and where their uh, you know little family feuds are and she pieces together like a lot of little fingers rebellion just by knowing who these people were and where they would sit at a table and why are they conversing with these people and things like that and i loved that scene because it was such a a flip the the person who was supposed to be interrogating was actually figuring out a lot about uh what was going on in the situation yeah that's that's uh very clever and and that's what i think i like about it is because it is such a such a psychological opportunity in stories for for those kind of those character confrontations essentially 
Well, and I think it's, I mean, it's such a scary idea in itself. So I think like when we witness a character being interrogated, like we feel nervous and we feel uh, on edge and we feel persecuted, um, you know, whether or not we we uh, sympathize with the person who's being interrogated, you know, such as Zola in this movie. But I don't know. It's just, it's a primal thing, I guess. Yeah, no, very interesting. Um, one of the other things that uh, Colonel Phillips mentions here is this whole idea that, you know, you cost the the life of uh, Captain Rogers' closest friend. And so because of that, I wouldn't count on the very best of protection from us, which is an interesting thing to say. It's like it's almost like the police saying, you know, what, uh, don't don't count on us to bail you out. You know, it's an interesting right. and kind of daunting thing. But it is interesting because it is only a couple days later. I know Zola was in his engine room that had cameras. I mean, we could see all these monitors, interior and exterior views of the train. Do you think that he knew? Like, do you think that he was watching when? Bucky fell like do you think he was aware that's a good question um like I feel like you can feel a sense of relief in him when he's learns that Bucky is dead like like I don't know if he you know kind of going back to my theory where you know he's wondering how much Bucky said and now knowing that Bucky can't say anything else uh I and the fact that that's the first thing that's brought up about him versus, you know, we know you tortured him or experimented on him or, or whatever was actually done. Um, so I, I think he doesn't just because of, um, his, I don't know. You just get a sense of relief from him. Well, yeah. I mean, it is interesting because they're on a train and it's moving and presumably we don't hear it, but as it was scripted, Joan said, stop the train. So they're going to stop it and they're going to take him. But all we know that's on the train, uh, I mean, it's a big train. We, we, I would assume there are a whole bunch of other hydro troopers on here, but, but nobody else comes out. So I don't know. So all we know is that it was Zola and the hydro trooper who is uh, up in the engine booth with him and Jones and Steve. And it's it's interesting because the, I don't know, in this sort of situation, it another kind of common trope in films is for the friend of the person who just died to now attack this person. So, and I know Steve is likely not the sort of person to do that, but um, it, it would be interesting to see Steve like come up to the engine room after it stops and like, you know, start trying to beat, you know, Zola because of what had just happened. You know, it's, it's uh, not bad. Yeah. It, I, it's just interesting because there are so few people left here. I, I feel like Zola has to know, like, I feel like they're going to say something like, I, I, I don't know. I feel like Captain America. Um, I feel like Steve would have a hard time not, you know, bringing it up. Like, you know, your guy just killed my friend or something, but yeah, hmm. that's a good point. I don't know. Maybe he knows that, Bucky has already been captured. I mean, I I don't know how he would know that because he was captured pretty much at the same time. But yeah. I don't know. There's, there's, I don't know. I feel like he knows something he's not letting on to, but what that is, we don't know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky 
dance, I suppose, that they're doing. So I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I feel like that he probably does know about all of this. But I just think it's interesting that that Phillips uses that as a as a hint to say, I mean, because this follows right after the, you know, likely your team has already decoded our our encoded message that says you're cooperating with us. And, you know, Schmidt is going to, you know, your liability to him. We're not going to do a very good job of protecting you. And then he, I mean, he does kind of, this, this is very much the definitive answer that he gives to him right now. He tells him it's you or Schmidt. That's the hand you've been dealt. And that's really where, I mean, it's taken this long, I suppose, through this, this uh, conversation for, I mean, we're really getting to Phillips's point here. And it's like, it's it. Either you help us um, or we're killing you. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying right there, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at the very least, we'll put you in a situation yeah. where you die. Where Schmidt <laughs> yeah. gets you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or you're going to be least protected in Switzerland. Yep. Right. Close to Schmidt and least protected. Exactly. All right. Well, um, we're at this point in the conversation where we're waiting to find out uh, how Zola is going to respond. So let's put a pin in it. We'll come back tomorrow, finish our conversation as we jump into the 89th minute of the film. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. Well, again, Lorraine, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate it. Remember, everybody, check out marvelmovieminute.com. You can uh, join our Discord group from there. You can look at our other socials, learn more about our membership uh, so you can get your episodes early without the ads and uh, get the hiatus episodes, all that good stuff. So we'll be back tomorrow with Minute 89. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.